Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Nicole Keith. She's president of the American College of Sports Medicine, a professor of kinesiology at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. She's also a research scientist at Indiana University Center for Aging Research, where she focuses on healthy aging, physical activity, and healthy outcomes. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to kind of just start out by having you tell us about yourself and what sparked your interest in health and medicine. Sure. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and my parents very quickly moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, as a young girl, we go back and visit both of their families in Chicago. And uh, they were strikingly poor to me, even as a child. I noticed how different my parents were than their brothers and sisters and my cousins. And it occurred to me as I got older that it was kind of education and income, as well as healthy living, that helped people change regardless of their genetics. And that's where I started on this healthy lifestyle quest to learn how to help people who may not have education and resources still live a healthy lifestyle. It's interesting. I have a very similar backstory. My parents were very different than their siblings, respectively. I'm curious, how did that happen for your family? What, what's the reason that there was that divide? Well, my mom and dad both decided to go to college, and they were the only ones of their siblings who could. Uh, they did well in high school and um, went to college and left Chicago to go to school in Michigan and progressed from there. My mom went on to get a master's degree and her PhD and my dad went on to get a master's degree and they just did really well. Um, and I think that was just the difference. Nobody else in their families went to college. And for them, were they also first generation in college? Like if you look at your grandparents on both sides and so on and so forth? They were the first generation to go to college. Wow. So you know, they met each other. They're obviously in many ways, I presume, like-minded because they made these very unique choices for themselves. And then how did that result in, in you being born and what was your path? Sure. So um, like I said, my mom got her PhD and I was alive when she got it. I was seven or eight years old. And so I saw, and she was the first black person to get a PhD from her university. And I remember how proud she was and how proud the president was to make that announcement and how excited it seemed everybody was and that seemed like a really cool thing to get. And um, then she used to take me to work with her and she was the Dean of Students at another university. And I would see how all of these students were around her all the time and learning and really vibrant. And I said, I wanna be a college professor too. And so that kind of set me on my quest and it was quite convoluted, but I ended up um, in exercise science and got three degrees around exercise physiology I immediately went to work, so I got a faculty position in, in a school in Southern Indiana, and then maybe three years later, ended up at IUPUI, where I am now, um, and decided that I wanted to do clinical research. So I was really interested in studying patient populations in federally qualified health centers. So I got another degree, a master's degree in clinical research, so that I could learn how to do that. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So for those that are keeping track, that's how many degrees total that you picked up along the way? Four. That's what I thought. So you, you obviously have demonstrated that you have a love for learning and lifelong learning, which is pretty cool. How much of that came from your family, your parents? All of it. We just really loved to read. My mom, even when we'd get sick of the books we had, 
would have us draw pictures and make up stories for us and act them out. My dad was a little bit of an unusual dad. When I was playing with Barbie dolls, um, he would play with me and make up stories about how the Barbie doll was a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer. And it was just really fun using our imaginations and learning more about the world. This is slightly off topic, but I'd love to hear your answer to this. Barbie dolls in particular, people have a lot of like connotations with them. And so you're, I mean, you're talking about being doctors and lawyers, and, and that's not typically what I think, at least a, a generation or generation and a half ago, uh, what people thought of with Barbie. So I'm just curious, why was it that your dad had this sort of foresight almost as he was raising his daughter? This was in the 70s, and this is when times were really starting to change for both Blacks and for women, and he didn't want me to be a stereotypical Barbie doll. He wanted me to see the Barbie doll for what she could be that wasn't a fashion model or Ken's girlfriend, but that she could really do these things as a woman independently. And of course, when I'm a little kid, I'm just happy that my dad is playing with me, but he really made me look at women differently just by playing with me in that way. That's awesome. He sounds like a really special person, and especially in that generation where I think it was a lot less normal to see men doing things like playing with Barbie dolls with their daughters. That's pretty awesome. He's a pretty awesome guy. Well, you know, here you are, president of the American College of Sports Medicine, and I think if you're going to go down those gender lines, also sports in general is not thought to be something that little girls are necessarily encouraged to go into. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you decided to become president of that association. It wasn't a decision. It's an election. <laughs> so I decided to run. There's, there are a series of steps that you have to achieve before you can even be eligible to be a presidential candidate. And so first I just got involved because as a member, my first meeting for the American College of Sports Medicine, I noticed that there were very few underrepresented minorities. And uh, there was a speaker there from South Africa and he was saying some very disparaging things. It was pretty close to post-apartheid. And he was saying some pretty disparaging things that I was surprised to hear at a scientific meeting. And um, I started to look over my shoulder to just kind of get a gauge of who's in the audience. And um, all I could see were white faces. And I said, this is why he can say these things. Uh, and my friend who happened to be white too was sitting next to me and patted me on my leg and whispered, I'm so sorry that you have to hear about this or hear this. And I thought she gets it. You, should, you don't have to be a person of color to understand that what he's saying is really racist. And so as I navigated the first meeting, I saw that there were very, very few people of color. And I thought that's not okay. I started observing that there was very little diversity within leadership of ACSM. And I just thought I need to remain a member just so that I can represent minorities within the organization. Fast forward several years, um, I became an assistant professor and I started going to these meetings more as a professional than a student. We had moved to Indianapolis. I was at IUPUI, and my husband was the executive director of the Black Coaches and Administrators. And I was in an elevator, and it just happened that I was in the elevator with the president and the president-elect and another colleague who introduced me to them. And they said, Keith, we're going to have a meeting with Floyd Keith. Are you related? And I said, sure, he's my husband. And they said, well, why don't you come? And I thought, great. So the first time I get a crack at leadership, it's because I'm somebody's wife and not because of my own scientific merit. But it's okay. I'll take it. The door opens for you. You should walk through it, regardless of the reason why. And we had a really great conversation about diversity and lack thereof in ACSM. And I said, I don't think that the Black coaches and administrators is the right way 
to engage in diversity because they're mostly football coaches and basketball coaches and they're mostly male and it's really not what this organization is all about. So they liked my ideas. They invited me to sit at the awards dinner the next night. Um, I did. And again, just all white people in this leadership banquet. And I said to the president-elect, we really should do something about the lack of diversity in this organization. And he said, well, let's talk about it next year. So we met in Denver and he just took me around, introduced me to his inner circle of leadership, introduced me to people that he didn't know, but thought he thought it would be helpful if I knew them. And at the end of the meeting, he said, what did you think of that? And I said, everybody needs a you. Everybody needs a mentor to take them around and expand their professional network. And so for that, we fast forward maybe a year and a half it took to create the leadership and diversity training program. Later on, we created the Mentoring Women to Fellowship program. You have to be a fellow before you can run for the board of trustees. And you have to be a candidate for vice president before you can run for president. So based on my work, based on I think that I saw something wrong and went to correct it and was highly successful at doing that, and I worked really hard, I became a fellow. Very shortly thereafter, they asked me to run for the board of trustees, and I did and I won. Maybe a year later after my three-year term, I was asked to run for vice president, and I did and I won. There are two vice presidents. It's a two-year term, and after those two years, we ran against each other. Um, my colleague won, and I lost. And that was hard because I had been in leadership positions for so long, but I got to work. I was doing other things. I wrote an R01. I got promoted to a full professor. Um, I got promoted to associate dean of faculty affairs, and I was doing other things professionally in my career. And at the end of the two-year term, I was asked to run again. And my husband said, do you really want to put yourself through that? And I said, I have been for almost 20 years complaining about the lack of diversity in leadership. And if I don't run again, then I'm a hypocrite. So I'm going to run again. And I did, and, and I won. And so here I am. That's a remarkable story. And I, I, I almost love the fact that you lost and then you won because it makes it even more poignant because it kind of sends the message that you don't always have to have the the winning history to try again. I think that's really impressive. Thank you. Absolutely phenomenal story. I'm hearing from you, you have some personal mentors, your, your partner, your parents. Do you feel like that's one of the challenges that you guys are trying to essentially put out there for, for young people coming up behind you is give them a chance to have the same sort of mentorship that you had as well? Definitely. Not everybody gets great parents, but some people do, and you really should always engage in your parents for advice. They know you better than anybody in many cases. Teachers serve as mentors, so elementary, middle school, high school teachers serve as mentors, and some of them stick with you forever. That was not the case with me, but when I got to college, even from undergrad, um, I had a great mentor who took me under her wing and who had international presence in um, physical education, teacher education and was really great to me. And then I got to my master's degree program and really connected with a professor who went on before me to become president of ACSM as well, is in my life today. And I've got her on speed dial and she has been really wonderful in getting me through the rough times of graduate school and tenure and promotion. But then within ACSM, I'm thrilled to have many peer mentors and many mentors who are ahead of me. 
Um, and I do think it's our responsibility to pray, play it forward. People helped us get to where we are. And it's really important that we help people along the way. You know, and a lot of what you do and a lot of what you're talking about in your role is around health, longevity. COVID-19 has obviously made us reframe some of those ideas. I'd love to get your thoughts on the pandemic from your lens, both maybe personally, but also from your standpoint of the president and your membership. Right. So it, it has gone through phases. And at first, it seemed like people were in denial and really didn't want to alter their habits. But then pretty quickly, we saw how COVID-19 was spreading from state to state and a stay home order was issued. And many people took that to heart and did stay home for the most part. But I started noticing towards the end of March, beginning of April, a lot of physical activity happening outside. A lot of people were working in their yards. Uh, you would drive past get Goodwill and you would see somebody cleared out a room. People were doing some self-organization um, and some self-care. And I thought that that was really awesome that this pandemic made people take the time to pause and take care of their property if they had it. I also saw a lot of people exercising outside. They were in parks, taking advantage of green space in their communities or sidewalks or bike lanes. And it made me realize that these amenities are not amenities at all, that it's necessary for community planners and policymakers to make sure these spaces are available and free so that people can take advantage and exercise outdoors um, when it's safe. And so that was another kind of benefit of the pandemic you know, physical activity in the house and in the yard and also physical activity out in the community. And so it kind of was a really great experience that was happening in the beginning. And then states, cities and states started reopening. And I got this other impression that was people aren't into prevention. And so in my profession, we're always telling people you need to be physically active because it's gonna slow or prevent chronic disease. You have to eat healthy, you have to get enough sleep. And these are all activities related to prevention, but it's way down the road. For most people, those chronic diseases aren't gonna show up for decades. But this wear your mask is something that's gonna protect you and others around you right away. And people didn't wanna do it. And I thought it's because people don't embrace prevention. And this is like COVID-19 shined a bright light on chronic disease and health disparities, to me, it also really demonstrated that people don't wanna participate in preventative activities, even if it's not to save yourself, even if it's to save others. So that was kind of mid game and where we are now, I see a lot of return to school, return to play, and the American College of Sports Medicine and especially our initiative, Exercises Medicine, has posted on the website several documents about how to do that safely and what the safest activities are and what might be a little bit more risky. And as you can imagine, it goes from non-contact, really physically distanced sports to full contact sports being probably something that you should delay. But again, somehow this health issue has become so political and it's a little bit confusing to me because everybody should wanna be healthy and everybody should wanna protect themselves and each other regardless of political power or affiliation. It's a great message and it also kind of uh, reminds me that we live in a very unequal world where some communities just don't have parks or 
you know, roads where they can kind of go walking and other communities have lots of that stuff. So it makes it easier from a motivation standpoint if you can just go right outside and do something versus if you have to like go across the city to enjoy something like that. That should be a shared public service. Here in Oakland, I don't know if you know, but our mayor actually shut down lots of roads to make them walk friendly. And actually, I think it sent a really good message. And I hope that they leave them shut down so that people can continue to enjoy the walkways. Because I think it just, again, this is, uh, I think, stimulated by COVID, but I hope it just continues afterwards. I hope so, too. And I made that observation back in March. And in July, um, we released the ACSM Anthem American Fitness Index. And one of the data points that was really striking to me was that commute the healthiest cities, so the cities that ranked in the top 10, and I think Oakland was probably one of them, <laughs> Indianapolis was in the bottom 10, um, but the cities that did the best uh, were those cities where they had more park expenditures, they were more bikeable, and they were more walkable. And so we talk a lot about personal responsibility for healthy behavior, but like you just said, if there's no place for people to do it, if the cities haven't invested in parks or bike lanes or sidewalks, then it makes it really hard for community residents um, to participate in those activities. Clearly, we're very like-minded on this point. Companies think of ROI, return on investment, and it's hard to measure return on investment for a park where kids feel safe to play because you don't really see all of the good repercussions of that, and it's hard to measure them that doesn't mean they don't exist and doesn't mean that they're not immense. And so I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah, Rishi, and the other hard part is when you look at those cities and if you look at AFI and you look at the percentage of people who are physically active and then the percentage of people who have comorbidities like diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and high cancer, and then you look at the park expenditures, you can't say there's a direct relationship because you know it's not really longitudinal data following the same people. But boy, there's a correlation. And you know, if policymakers can't look at that and see, I can't track this neighborhood in short term, but you certainly can in long term and see that, that there is a return on investment. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and there's so many decisions that we make with impartial data. And so this idea that we need perfect data, just that doesn't exist anywhere. So I think we have to do with the data we have. And the data we have is what you just said, is that there's a strong correlation between healthy spaces and healthy living. It's obviously the right thing to do. It also happens to be the cheaper thing to do. Absolutely. Which I don't think people always realize. I'd love for you to speak more about exercise as medicine and, and why you're finding that in some populations that really resonates, but in others it doesn't. Can you just tell me more about that? Sure. So for people who don't know, exercise as medicine is an initiative. It's about 13 years old, delivered by the American College of Sports Medicine. And the law, in the long run, the goal is to make physical activity a HEDIS measure. So something that every physician in every clinic does, like take your blood pressure, your height, your weight, ask you about your physical activity participation. Um, but while we're working on that, we're really encouraging healthcare providers to talk to their patients about physical activity participation. And if the patients are not physically active, then to refer them to a community resource and the reasons they may not be physically active will determine which, which resource. So if you're somebody who is active all your life and you just moved to a new place and got really busy with your job and you really don't know where to go, then they might refer to a park or a green space and just say, here's a really great place to jog or walk or bike. If you're somebody who has absolutely no idea what to do, then the referral might be to a community location like a YMCA or some other kind of fitness center 
or it might be to a specific fitness professional, but the idea is for physicians to, or other healthcare providers to talk to their patients about exercise and do, then do the referral. Part of the problem of why it's not being embraced by everybody is because it's really not in the medical school curriculum. And so um, if it's not in your undergraduate medical education and it's not in your residency program, then it's not gonna really be something that you're comfortable with. And so we're working really hard and at Indiana University School of Medicine where I am, it's part of the residency. They have a healthy lifestyle rotation and we're part of it. And so we're talking to residents about how to, uh, how to bill, what the, code, what the ICD codes are, it's really important. So part of it is if you don't learn it when you're training, then you're probably not gonna just pivot and do it as part of your clinical practice. The other part of it is that we have to do a better job of making the referral process easy. We know that there's a really finite time that you have to talk to your patients and that we have to make it so that you can quickly get this message to your patients. And then I think the third piece of it is that many physicians during their training stopped practicing healthy habits and didn't go back to it. And so it's really difficult to talk to a patient about healthy lifestyle if you're not practicing what you preach. We did a study a couple of years ago with our medical residents and their rotation is over a period of years and we followed them. And most of the residents' health outcomes got worse over the course of their residency. And, and so really, again, we're talking about personal behavior but there should be some policy within medical school and within residence, residency to at least encourage physicians in training and physicians who are going to a specialty to really take care of themselves for their physical health, but also for their mental health, because there is a concern about suicide rates in healthcare providers. Yeah, I mean, you, you're saying everything that, that I believe so strongly. When I was, I'll take myself as an example. I went to residency. That was the time when I ate the worst, slept the worst, obviously and just never ever really got off my butt to do anything. It's terrible because then I go into a room and try to convince someone of something I really don't believe in or I'm not living. And it feels like a very awkward conversation. I've never learned anything about it in med school ever. And rarely do I hear people like you speaking about it. And if people could actually just focus on exercise, eating and sleeping well, a lot of these chronic illnesses would go down and, and quality of life would get better. I mean, it's, it's, we're in such a disease management model in healthcare. It's not even healthcare, it's sick care, really. Really, healthcare is what you're promoting, um, but the words get conflated. I think it's so wonderful to hear you speak on this. Well, thank you. And I really would like to see um, many more medical school curriculum pick this up because we get really great reviews from our residents who take the class. But what I will say also, if that doesn't happen and if there happens to be healthcare providers listening, that the Exercises Medicine website has literally documents that you can download and hand to your patients about the importance of physical activity in every chronic disease, and they're available in English and Spanish. Nicole, one final question, which is what advice do you have for rising students? You know, right now in our audience, we have tons of physical therapy students, some occupational health students, medical students, nursing students, you name it, and they're going into the healthcare workforce. Uh, do you mind just giving kind of what you would say to them in terms of advice? And also just mention that website and spell it out just because I want to make sure that they can get to it. Right. So the website is exercisesmadison.org. And what I would say to all of those kinds of students is congratulations. That's the first thing because not only did you graduate. So if you're in an undergraduate program, congratulations, you graduated from high school. 
you got accepted into college and you're matriculating, there are very few people in the world who get to that place. If you're going on to professional school or to medical school, you're amazing that you got in and that you were able to matriculate to this point makes you an amazing person and everybody whose lives you've touched, they're all so proud of you because it's really an amazing accomplishment. And then I would say, take care of yourself. It's a really stressful time, but you have to look back and say, I'm great. I'm doing this and that makes me great already, that I'm really smart and that I have the opportunity to change the world, to change my little piece of the world. And give yourself a break. Don't be so hard on yourself. You will stumble, all of us stumble. You will change your mind and that's okay. You have to follow your dreams. But again, congratulations because what you're doing already is fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Keith, for being with us today. Your wisdom is very well appreciated. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a great conversation. Awesome. Well, I'm Dr. Risha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.